right now on Matter of Fact. I was working remotely and doing the schooling remotely. You have to be sitting with her for every single lesson. American families burned out, looking for balance. We've all experienced the burnout of this pandemic work life. We've experienced what it means to have no boundaries. How will businesses convince millions of workers a return to the workplace will make life better? Plus, a Pulitzer Prize winner poses a question. But where are you from? I'm white, he replied. But white is not a country, I said. What can we learn about identity from this undocumented American? But first. There was no way that I would expect a white police officer to get invested in my life as a black violent criminal. I saw something a little different in him. The story of an unlikely friendship. I'm glad yeah. to call you my friend. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> and how it transformed their lives. <laughs> I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. Now to a story about a call to police that could have ended much differently than it did. It resulted in an unlikely friendship between a police officer and a convicted felon, one that has withstood a murder trial, prison time, and nearly three decades. Our correspondent, Jessica Gomez, has their remarkable story. I kind of grew up in the Leave it to Beaver family the white picket fence and, <laughs> and everything else, and was uh, fortunate to have great parents. So I came from a legacy of murderers uh, in my family, addiction, uh, uh, alcoholism, uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse. You're scared all the time. The story of Dana Marsh and Jarrell Jones begins here at an apartment complex just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, nearly 30 years ago. I used to deal drugs right here. Dana, then a police officer with just one year on the job, arrested Jarrell for disorderly conduct. The 24-year-old, a drug dealer and addict with a long rap sheet. After that, Dana would see me on the street. I'd be selling drugs or buying drugs, maybe, and he would stop the car, hit the lights, and pat me down, and then start talking to me about changing my life. I saw something a little different in him. I can't explain it. Don't know why. Jarrell eventually accepting the police officer's help. He left for his hometown of Birmingham, Alabama, with a bus ticket Dana bought him. This would have been the backyard. You would come yeah. in from the backyard directly into the kitchen. But it didn't take long for Jarrell's troubled past to catch up with him. Staying in his great-grandmother's house, today an empty lot, he had a conflict with her husband and stabbed him to death. It was surreal. I felt like I couldn't believe I had done this. And um, I, stood, I sat there shaking, and then I basically... Uh, made a decision that I was going to turn myself in. And I called Dana and told him that I had just killed a man. He said, uh, I got to take accountability. Uh, this is the only thing that I can do to change my life. Despite Dana testifying on his behalf, Jarrell was sentenced to life in prison. He was going through a lot of remorse, but he also had realized that the only way that he could make his life worth something is helping those that were coming in that were gonna be able to get back out. 
Moving through prisons in four states, that's what Jarrell did. Taking accountability classes, studying psychology, and counseling other inmates. From the outside, Dana, busy with a young family, continued to support him. He visited, you know, sent money, went to my, my, my hearings. Whatever he could do, he did. You know, he treated me like a brother. After 20 years behind bars, Jarrell's impact on others, earning him his release. Nobody had ever talked to y'all like that before. Today, that work continues, mentoring local teenagers, teaching things like landscaping and life lessons, ones he learned the hard way. When I say accountability, what comes to your mind? I tell them that they can be a promise of their environment instead of a product. Words are spirit and words are life. Jarrell's promise, helping neighborhoods like the one in which he grew up heal. His work as a community leader, now attracting the attention of Birmingham's top cops and prosecutors. And always there, his friend Dana Marsh. Yep, we know we'll have a bar right here. That Absolutely. The former Georgia cop, now markets law enforcement equipment, his world still very different from Jarrell's. <laughs> There's times that I'll make a statement, Jarrell, instead of saying, well, that's stupid. <laughs> instead, he'd say, well, let's walk through this a little bit and then help me to have a different perspective, be able to see through his eyes. Two sets of eyes, they say, but one heart. Nearly three decades later. What would you tell a young police officer who might be encountering the same situation today? You've got to have compassion. Uh, if we don't, things won't change. We learn that from each other then. Yeah, because his compassion towards me translated to my compassion towards others. Father, we thank you for the food we're about to receive. I was a violent criminal. Mm -hmm. And to think that, uh, you know, that this is what redemption looks like, you know, sitting at the table with the, the actual police officer that arrested you. Miracles are real, and so, Toast to miracles. Glad yeah. to call you my friend. Thank you. <laughs> In Fayetteville, Georgia, for matter of fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. Next on Matter of Fact, millions of burned out American workers are anxious about returning to work, thinking, if things break down again or personally it becomes a struggle for my family, I'm gonna have to leave again how companies are reinventing the workplace to convince employees it's time to come back. And later, could launching 42,000 satellites into space speed up your internet? a year makes. Last spring, women were exiting the workforce in droves. As jobs disappeared, homes turned into classrooms, and women took on the care of parents and grandparents struggling through the pandemic. It has been a balancing act that few could have ever imagined. Yes, yes, Henry planted crops. My name is Shanice Nicole Lyons Linares, and my daughter is Victoria Nicole Lyons, and she's 11 years old. My daughter is bilaterally blind. She is developmentally delayed. She has epilepsy. She's 11 years old, but she's only on the level of a 10-month-old. So she's nonverbal and she requires 24-hour care. Prior to the pandemic, 
She would wake up in the morning about 6 a.m. and she would get on the bus between 6.30 and 6.45 to head to the Bronx to Lavelle School for the Blind. She would have occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy in combination with feeding therapy. She would also have musical therapy, adaptive PE, which is adaptive physical education. Now things are definitely different. She now has all of those things, but it's in combination with mom and an iPad. <laughs> In the beginning, it was hard because I was working remotely and doing the schooling remotely. You have to be sitting with her for every single lesson. You have to do hands-on with her every single lesson. So that was overwhelming. It was extremely overwhelming. But then I went to become furloughed, receiving unemployment, which is not even close to what I was making at work. And now I'm doing the remote learning fully and it made me much happier to know that my daughter is safe but I'm still struggling financially so it's like a catch-22 it was very disheartening in the beginning but at the end of the day I pray on it and I know that things will work out so just how are things working out some Americans are getting back to work but women who make up more than half of the unemployed in the nation could be facing a longer road back. Beth Humbert is an associate professor of management at the University of Massachusetts and an expert on gender and diversity in the workplace. Professor Humbert, thank you for talking with me. So if you're a hiring manager who's trying to get the business back up and running, what do you need to think about creating in order to get women to come back to those jobs? We've seen a lot of forward-looking companies, not just for women, but having kind of waited through this period, offering one time a month Fridays off or making a policy that no meeting should happen before 10 a.m. or after 2 p.m. And so this is a real moment where those managers, the hiring managers, to your point, have a really big job to do. We've all experienced the burnout of this pandemic work life. We've experienced what it means to have no boundaries between work and home. And so we, I'm hopeful that managers having experienced it themselves can kind of model that transparency as we're trying to get people more comfortably back in the workforce. One other point though I wanna make is we tend to largely talk about this with a professional bias, right? And so I am concerned about the way that we as organizations and managers think about helping the less professionalized workforce that probably felt these impacts even more starkly. I have to imagine people have been knocked off the promotion path. People have been knocked off uh, the opportunity path. People have been knocked out of um, specific jobs and opportunities. Uh, what do you think has been lost in this pandemic for women? I think the more recent statistics are saying since March of 2020, 4.5 million women exited the workforce and we've only seen about two, or I think still two million remain out of the workforce. Some of the latest estimates suggest it's gonna take about 18 months longer for women to regain that labor force participation, 18 months longer than men. And then we have some of the similar dynamics that you would often look at when women would take time off for child rearing, what level are they re-entering at? And then other women are really thinking hard about 
their ability to go back to work at the same level that they were at before. You use the word burnout, and I think that's a really good word because everyone I know is feeling stressed and completely burned out. Are you seeing best practices or something that you would say in terms of strategy for business around mental health um, and getting people back on track financially that, that you like? We're seeing um, some companies are actually paying employees a bonus to use vacation time. So if I see you use a week of vacation time, I will give you an extra $1,000 bonus. We are seeing some companies institute um, every third Friday is a day off for the entire company and calling it a mental health day. We are seeing some companies that have typically used like a ERP and employee resource program to have mental health offerings through the organization, actually giving individuals a stipend to go use the, find their own mental health care. We have to see what the difference is of having these policies on the books and who's actually able to use them. Professor Beth Humbert, thank you for talking with me. Thank you so much, I enjoyed it. Coming up on Matter of Fact, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. At 40, having lived in this country for most of my life, I'm still undocumented. What we can learn from his life as an undocumented citizen and later, fact or fiction? What really happened when President Lincoln met the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin at the White House? Welcome back to Matter of Fact. President Biden's administration says it will significantly expand the legal immigration system. It wants a shorter, simplified process, and it wants to speed up the granting of work visas. But there's other work that needs to be done a backlog of citizenship applications reaching nearly 900,000 and another 1.2 million deportation cases that are waiting to be heard. In our recent listening tour to Be an American, we asked a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist to share his story of living in the United States without documents. Jose Antonio Vargas entered the country when he was just a child. His experience is documented in his book, Dear America, notes of an undocumented citizen. At 40, having lived in this country for most of my life, I'm still undocumented. I was three months too old for DACA. I am subject to deportation and be kicked out of the country that I call my home. It's no different than the limbo that so many of us have been living in for so long. In many ways, the pandemic for me has mirrored the experience of what it means to be an undocumented immigrant in the United States the lack of movement, the inability to see beyond the horizon. I haven't seen my mother in almost 30 years, and with the pandemic, that distance feels even greater because it's mixed with the fear of the unknown that lives in everything right now. When I think of what it means to be American, I often think a lot about language, how it shapes our place in the world and how it affects others, how words have power and stories have power. Time and time again, I come back to some crucial questions. Where did you come from? How did you get here? Who paid? All across America, in front of diverse audiences, I've asked those three questions. After asking a student at the University of Georgia where he was from, he said, I'm American. I know, I said, but where are you from? I'm white, he replied. But white is not a country, I said. And if white is not a country, then white is not our only story. And if it's not our only story, 
we need to consider our language very closely and our stories. We're not gonna get very far on comprehensive immigration policies until we confront the issues in our culture. It's the American story, and that story is changing every day, growing in ways that we could never imagine, and the living, breathing history of who we are and who we will be. You can hear more stories of identity, including those of comedian Gina Brion, disability advocate Lydia Xe Brown, and Ilyasa Shabazz, the daughter of Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz, at matteroffact.tv. It's all part of the Matter of Fact listening tour to be an American, identity, race, and justice. Ahead, launching tens of thousands of satellites to bring the internet to remote areas of the world. What's the cost of making that work? To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. When was the last time you spent a day without using the internet? And yet, almost two billion people around the world still don't have access. SpaceX creator Elon Musk wants to change that with the help of an $800 million grant from the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. The project is called Starlink, and it plans to send 42,000 satellites into space. The goal is to provide internet access to remote areas. So far, he's launched more than 1,700 of them. To put that in perspective, there are currently only 4,300 working satellites in orbit. Astronomers say the light radiating from the satellites blocks their view of the night skies. Others are worried about adding to the tons of junk already floating in space. Now, the project has not yet received full environmental review, and as for costs, Starlink users in those remote areas pay almost $500 for a setup kit and then $99 a month for the service. When we come back, a pop quiz about literary history. What was the most popular book sold in the 19th century, second only to the Bible? Finally, today, a little pop quiz about literary history. What was the most popular book sold in the 19th century, second only to the Bible? The answer? Harriet Beecher Stowe's anti-slavery story, Uncle Tom's Cabin, for which she was paid $300. Printed in an abolitionist weekly called the Washington National Era, the first installment, one of 40, was released this weekend, June 5th, 1851. As readers passed their copies along, a Boston publisher took notice and decided to publish the story as a book. It became an instant bestseller with 300,000 copies sold in the first year. Several historians have recorded an anecdote about President Lincoln receiving Harriet Beecher Stowe at the White House in 1862. He supposedly welcomed her saying, so this is the little lady who made the big war. He's referring, of course, to the Civil War. The book has had a profound impact. Over the years, the novel has been translated into more than 70 languages. So that's quite a story. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week for Matter of Fact. If you missed our top stories about the unlikely bond between a police officer and a man he arrested, COVID burnout, and its impact on women in the workforce, the story of an undocumented American, and a supersized satellite program to bring the internet to remote areas, just go to matteroffact.tv. And 
Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.